Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. Twenty twenty one is finally here, and as with any new year, we wish this one to be better than the previous one. Twenty twenty sure changed the perspective of what that actually means. I'm your host Tiasha Zaitz, and for the first episode of this year, I wanted to prepare an easygoing introduction to the year. You will hear a discussion with John Nosta. John is consistently ranked among the top names in digital health. He's an advisor to many digital health companies and the founder of Nostalab, a digital health think tank. I invited him to the show for a relaxed but deep discussion about where we are at the moment in digital health and healthcare, and what we can be optimistic about in the upcoming year. Enjoy the show. And to learn more about other episodes as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. To be notified about new episodes automatically, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. May 2021 be your year. Now, to the discussion with John. Hello, John. It's 2021, and I wanted to talk to you as the first guest of this year, as a futurist, as someone who's very critical about how society is solving problems and working in general. So welcome back to the show after almost three years. How optimistic are you about this year? It's been three years. It's been three years. I thought you were going to say earlier this year. Time, time flies, and I and I think that is basically what what the last year has done for the world. It's compressed um, digital transformation. It's compressed drug development. It's compressed telemedicine adoption into a short period of time. So, you know. I I am I'm optimistic about the future. I am concerned um about the immediate changes about a new strain of COVID and some of the numbers I'm seeing in Europe, particularly in the UK and in London. Um and I think that's going to potentially change our strategy a little bit. You know, personally, when I was thinking about this question, I actually thought that in some aspects the current time reminds me on March 2020 when the virus was here, but we didn't know much about it. Now, in January 2021, the vaccine is here, but it's unclear if enough people will get vaccinated. We don't know how fast we will need to get uh, booster doses. We don't know what will be the impact of the new strain of coronavirus, as you mentioned yourself. So there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of factors that make a point against being overly optimistic. Well, you know, 
let me counter that by saying I am confident and I am optimistic in humankind. I'm also optimistic in the power of science and medicine. So that I think that we have um, we have the magic bullet in place, and that's the vaccine. Now, we have the manufacturing methodology in place. We understand the genomic makeup of the virus. We could track, actually track the mutations. So I think that as we compress vaccine development, we could certainly stay ahead of the curve. Remember, the existing vaccines will most likely be effective against um, the new strain of COVID, it might not be as effective. I know that some of the mutations have have been occurring at the spike protein, which could be potentially, you know, problematic. But I think that we have the mechanism in place to manage it. You know, let's think about it. We have um, social distancing. We have some of the sort of social hygiene programs that are in place, and and, and that's you know good and bad in certain instances. We have advanced therapeutics that are in place. We know the appropriate use of positioning in bed, the use of oxygen, the use of the judicious use of intubation, the appropriate use of um, antibody cocktails and um, other therapeutic interventions like prednisone. So that's, that's, all good. And, and from that perspective, I think that, that we're in reasonably, you know, I use the word good in quotes, but contact tracing may be the most vulnerable aspect of this. I've found that, that contact tracing has largely been a failure. And I don't know if we should put the resources into that modality or just jump quickly to um, managing sick patients well and aggressively pursuing the use of the vaccine. I agree, and I agree that uh, contact tracing turned out to be an unsuccessful approach towards the pandemic. And I think the good example of that is South Korea, which was an exemplary country in this regard. And by the end of 2020, they were struggling with uh, providing enough uh, beds for COVID patients because the pandemic kind of um, just one in in that regard. So, you know, I I am optimistic about the vaccine. I look very much forward to getting vaccinated. I also find it inspiring to see how Israel already managed to vaccinate 10% of the country. However, uh, the question that I still have is, According to some uh, polls, there's around 50% of the population that say that they would be interested in getting vaccinated. And epidemiologists say that we should have 60 to 70% of the population vaccinated in order to be successful. So I just wonder, like, what the human factor is going to do to this whole story? A couple things. One is when you look at Israel, you know, Israel comes up time and time again, most notably around airport security. Israel has some of the best airport security. They do sophisticated profiling. They, they've never had a terrorist attack on, on their commercial airlines, um, you know, in the recent future. 
And that's because they're a technologically advanced society and a fairly small population. So when you look at 330 million people versus Israel, it's more manageable. How many airports do they have? You know, so I think that they could manage the, the functional application of the vaccine. But there are a couple of things here that I think that are interesting. Number one is what is the velocity? What's the trajectory? In other words, okay, so the United States is at 2%. Israeli is at 10%. What's the, what's the shape of that curve? Is it accelerating? You know, being off to a small, slow, a, a small or slow start is one thing, but, you know, can we accelerate to, to get that curve, uh, you know, moving forward? So that, that, that's something that is interesting to me. The other thing is, what about things like length of stay for hospitalizations? You know, we talk about more people going to the hospital and we often compare it to March, where the length of hospitalization was rather long. Today, we are, in fact, seeing people um, with shorter hospital stays. This is anecdotal data of some regional medical centers. So, you know, we have to put that into context and and try to manage this in this sort of multifactorial soup, if you will. Let's move to technology. Quite a few studies have started with using technology for early detection of covid Manufacturers of consumer wearables such as Fitbit and Garmin responded to the pandemic by initiating studies to assess the ability of their products to detect COVID-19 early. What do you think about that? Um, it makes me yawn. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that, I mean, look at the curve in London. Right. Look at the 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 um, number of covid infections. It's actually vertical. It's straight up in the air. And and I'm, I'm not sure. You know, if, if the magic is in early detection, I think that early detection is fairly simplistic. Again, I'm, I'm of the camp that everybody's going to get it unless they're vaccinated. So I think that, that it's important to, to drive harder, faster, smarter down the road of clinical management, therapeutics, and vaccinations. The reason I uh, asked you that partially was because in the last year or so, you started talking a lot about technology intelligence or TQ, which is an idea about how we use and understand technology for better humanity. So let's talk about that. I thought that COVID studies were a little bit of an example of trying to use technology for, you know, greater good. So what do you mean when you talk about TQ? It's time for you to explain. Well, you know, when I, when I, when I think of, of technology quotient and I think of the um, inculcation of technology into our lives, I don't think of an activity tracker. I, I don't think of nudge psychology I, I find some of these sort of rudimentary digital health technologies not to define really the the depth and breadth of the technological magic. Now, that's not to demean these devices. I think counting steps is still good. But when we look at it, at more advanced things along the lines of, of artificial intelligence or, or CRISPR or um, genetic um, analysis of, of the COVID sequence. Those are the things where it becomes fundamental. Uh, 
So I, I don't think that it's as simple as um, using a simple device in your life. I think that recognizing that technology plays a role in your life broadly, either as an active participant in this technology or as a beneficiary of technolog- technology's um, advances. So what do you dislike about technology? You're a huge fan. You see a lot of potential in it. But where do you see the dangers? Um, I think the biggest danger in technology is not recognizing how important it is into our, in our lives. And I'll say that again. I think the biggest danger is not recognizing how important technology is in our lives. But do you think that it's not recognized? Because I feel that there's this awareness or fear arising about technology playing a too important role in our lives. And to a certain extent, media, two devices, two constant monitoring, and two everything that stems from that. The surveillance that the nineteen eighty four that everybody But that's just so I don't I don't believe that. I think that I think I don't think people are afraid. I don't think people are running and screaming away from Facebook. You know, I, I don't think that they are they are fearful of it in the context of of human fear. But again, it's it's the nature of, of innovation and technology. Recognizing that our first technology, which was fire, and, and you could argue this a little bit, but let's just say that that fire was our first technology. And that was an amazingly important thing. It allowed us to stay up at night, it allowed us to move, it allowed us to cook our meals and nourish and grow our brain. But even today, with all our technological sophistication, fire is still one of the leading causes of um, of destruction, of personal destruction. People still lose their houses to fire. So fire has that duality, the duality of wonder and fear. That's the nature of technology. So if you want to be able to talk with people around the world and build networks and understand about diseases and make new friends that will have a corresponding position of, of fear. And I think that technology in particular, artificial intelligence is one of the most exciting and most wonderful aspects of technological advances, but it will bring with it fear. Now, are you afraid of fire? Do you not have fire in your house because you think you'll burn your house down? No, I'm fascinated personally. And, and, you know, there it is. I mean, I think that we could cling to this notion of, uh, of I'm fearful of technology because of what it will do, or we can act accordingly and move forward. The toothpaste of technology is out of the tube, and we have to evolve and change and work with it. it it's not going away. But I think if you are in a group that fears technology because of the potential negative consequences, you're already in the group that's aware of the potential of technology. Whereas what we're dealing with now is the problem of ignorance is bliss, meaning that people are not aware of what technology is capable of. And if I take just one basic example, it's internet security and the fact that people still use the same password for all the websites they log into that they don't use password managers. Or if you move more into medicine, I really like the the introduction of artificial intelligence tools in hospitals. 
And it turned out that when doctors were not introduced to technology in a meaningful uh, manner, when they do so because they didn't understand how it worked. So they didn't know why they could trust AI. So that's kind of a, a big issue, I think, if we talk about digital health and technologies. Well, I, I agree. I think that, that trust, you know, is, is an element of, of the advancement, if you will, of the diffusion of innovation. But I think that's the responsibility of those who are evolving this, this technology and this business. You know, I mean, you see it in, in, in almost any category. The diffusion of innovation takes time and there are certain hurdles. But I, I don't think that they're, by any stretch of the imagination, insurmountable hurdles. What do you mean when you say uh, the diffusion of innovation? I think that's an interesting concept. So let's talk a bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know... When, when a product or service or an idea comes into the marketplace, everyone doesn't always, A, know about it, B, embrace it, and, and, then, and then, you know, evolve accordingly. For example, um, the use of a rotary phone versus a push-button phone. Some people got them very quickly. Some people just didn't care to change. Um, let's go to the clinical side. Um, the the um, discovery of Heliobacter pylori as a causative factor in ulcers. Everyone thought that ulcers was about acid eating away at your stomach when we found out that that was, that was a bacterial infection that was part of this. And that we can treat this with, with proton pump inhibitors, with uh, bismuth-containing and acids, but also with antibiotics. So the nature of change is a function of the adoption curve. And that adoption curve has different segments to it. There are the early adopters, either the innovators, they are the laggards and the late adopters. So I think that's what we're going to see. And it's, it's, it's just not smooth. You don't, you don't push a button and expect people to use your product or service. I think that's one of the biggest flaws in, in digital health is that there's this prevailing notion of build it and they will come. And, and worse than that, they say, build it and the patients will drive its use irrelevant of what the medical community says. So, you know, adoption, the adoption sequence or the diffusion of innovation is almost as important as the idea itself sometimes. Do you think that uh, build it and they will come really still holds true? Because my impression is that We've learned a lot about technology adoption in the last few years. The fact that you need to work with the users, test the ideas, be mindful of how you do rollouts, especially in larger scale implementations as it is in hospitals. No, 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 no. They don't know how to do it. They get it wrong. Most of these entrepreneurs have no sense of marketing, have no sense of positioning, have no sense of market stratification. You know, we talk the talk of, well, let's make sure we understand what our patients are thinking and, and what our stakeholders want and need. But I think that, that that is fundamentally wrong. And the reason is, is because it's hard. Amazon gets it wrong. You know, Johnson and Johnson gets it wrong. If it was so easy, if, a, if an entrepreneur can just say, oh, well, we'll be mindful of this and mindful of that and roll out our product, because over the past two, three years, we've gotten smarter, is a blaring mistake. 
So you're an advisor to many uh, companies. What's your uh, 2021 gift to them, like to the digital health companies in general? Enlighten us with some of the advice you would give to the companies that are so, 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 you know, not doing things as well as they could. Well, number one, they have to recognize that they need a single-minded point of difference. They need to penetrate the market like a, like a spear. Um, Abraham Lincoln said that if he had eight hours to chop down a tree, he'd spend six of them sharpening his ax. And, and what we find with most innovators today, especially the small innovators on a, on a small budget, struggling to get their, their brand to marketplace, they spend 99% of their time and their money on the device. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And then when it comes to articulating their message, coming up with a, with a simple, coherent message into the marketplace, well, they figure they could just push it through or come up with something on the fly. And, And that's, that's tragic because it takes a good idea and it doesn't let it penetrate into the marketplace. Most commonly, what I find is that, that entrepreneurs try to be all things to all people. In other words, they try to position their brand as a bundle of benefits. Um, oh, I don't know. Let's use a pharma brand where it's safe, effective, well-tolerated, on formulary. In other words, it's five things. And tragically, if I were to throw five tennis balls at you, you'll catch none of them. But if I threw one at you, you would catch it. So the challenge for marketers today, whether you're big pharma, whether you're a big device company like Medtronic, um, or you're a small um, startup, is to try to find that single-minded point of difference, that resonant aspect of truth that reacts to a marketplace reality, often called the key insight. And, and that That's what gets the juices flowing. That's what begins to shift. Now, when that happens, something else happens. And this is fundamental. Most people believe that their, their position statement or whatever you want to call it is a selling proposition. They believe that when that message is articulated to an audience, they will want to buy your product. And, and that's not true. What you're trying to um, elicit in the minds of your audience is a simple reply. And that reply is, tell me more. And if you could combine an interesting single-minded proposition that relates back to that, to that emotional idea in the minds of your audience, clinician, patient, doctor, whomever, of tell me more, that pushes the process forward. And, and for me, that's the one biggest um, point of advice I could give to to entrepreneurs. And, and can I carry on a little further here before I step sure. off my soapbox? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. The, the idea here is that your brand position, what your thing stands for, is not necessarily highly emotional and poignant and full of rich, interesting words or language. It's actually a simple trigger that responds to an underlying insight in the marketplace. And it's that combination of trigger and insight that causes the magic to happen. The insight is often seen as a rubber band. And the more you have a stretch to that rubber band, the more important the problem is that when the trigger comes along as a very simple flat-footed statement, it reacts. And that combination is what drives awareness for the product. 
I think that branding is a an important topic today because in the era of social media, what has become popular is this notion of personal branding, of positioning. So one thing that I wanted to ask you is how do you see social media uh, in the TQ equation? Social networking platforms are an important technology that have further gained in societal impact due to the pandemic and the inability of people to meet in person. You know, there's there are a couple couple things to touch on there. First is the difference between a brand personality and a brand position. And while people use them interchangeably, they're not the same. They're very, very different. A positioning statement is what you stand for in the marketplace. Um, Volvo, um, you could argue, owns safety, even though that's evolved a little bit, but they own safety. Their brand personality could be a lot of things, but what they own is a position and a personality. So you have to look at the duality of those things. That's that's important. So... Um, my, my position in the world could be smart or knowledgeable or resourceful, but my brand personality could be comical. It could be contrarian. It could be compassionate. It could be all sorts of things. And it's the combination of those two that, that create that brand identity. So, you know, for marketers that are looking at, at building a brand, um, look at, look at, look at Apple. Apple is white. And a while ago, when we looked at Droid, when Droid was was launching, when it was sort of the antithesis of the Apple process, iOS, um, it was black. And they had very different brand personalities selling something similar. So, so for me, a brand personality is what brings your position to life. And, and they're very different. Now, with respect to social media, you know, social media for me, um, as it fits into this whole two, this TQ dynamic. There are a couple things. One is social media, particularly Twitter for me, is a search engine. So I don't even think of it in the context of a brand personality or or how I, I create my brand. First and foremost, I use it to become informed. So the first step is to use it the same way I would use, let's say, Google um, or DuckDuckGo. I, I use it to listen to the marketplace. And that's probably the most important tool um, for things like um, like Twitter. On the other side of the coin is that when I begin to speak, when I begin to articulate information, and by the way, that's that's very, very few people. You know, most most of the Twitter banter is idle jargon, jokes, pictures, and kind of retweets. So I think that um, when you begin to develop a Twitter brand, you have, you have a lot of options about how to build your brand. And it's, it's not, it's not, it's not that easy, actually. But do you think that the whole pandemic changed the way we use social media or the way social media can be used to influence health? No, I don't think it, I don't think it's done that much. I mean, I but think it, that it's, it's disseminated information to a small group of people, but I would argue that the vast majority of society um, have not turned to social media for information um, about about the pandemic. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that since a lot of misinformation was circling in 
uh, social media. And I don't have uh, really an opinion about that, but I do, you know, remember in the news things like Facebook trying to address mental health with the analysis of the activity of their users and research regarding, you know, how fast you type or how active you are on social media, trying to uh, find out the state of mental health you're currently in. Are you depressed or, you know, based on the searches that you're making, uh, what state of mind are you in? So, you know, from that perspective, I don't think we can just dismiss social media as not having any impact in the digital health sense. In a sense, social media. No, I didn't say it didn't. I didn't say it didn't have any impact, but I, I, I think that with respect to COVID, um, you know, mo- most of the of of you know when Elon Musk tweets something that becomes inflammatory or outrageous or interesting, um, most of the most of the pickup on that is through television. You know the stories um, on on news and also on regular websites pick that up and make that happen. I don't think that that you know because it went viral on Twitter, it was in of itself a very powerful dynamic. It's a little different, I think. So you don't think that if there was less social media, let's imagine a world where we don't have social media, we just have media, that there would be less trust in science and the scientific discoveries supporting the meaning of the COVID vaccine, for example? No, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I would go that far. Um, because I think that a lot of good is done on social media. There's been a tremendous amount of cross-pollination and, and knowledge sharing on social media platforms. So how do you, you, you can't just take out the bad without the good. And I think the net net is better. I definitely don't think that, you know, social media is just bad. I'm just questioning the impact it has in our discussion. To not get astray in the debate, you mentioned that uh, the social media allows for a lot of exchange of thoughts. I think you can meet a lot of interesting people and get to know a lot of interesting professionals on all these platforms and find people to collaborate with, exchange knowledge with. So let's talk about that. The idea of collaboration in one of your podcasts, you kind of questioned the understanding of collaboration and consensus that we have. So let's talk a bit about that. You, you use two, two different words that I, that I think are, are important. Um, collaboration and consensus. And I, I think that they're very different. Collaboration is essential. It is the nature of human progress. And if you go back 10 years ago or 15 years ago or even five years ago, we, we began speaking about the collaborative nature of care and multiple stakeholders. And it was, if I'm sick, 
I want to be able to have a dialogue with my doctor about optimizing my care, but I want to bring in my spouse or my child or the respiratory therapist or the nurse. In other words, it was multiple stakeholders coming together to, to create a team approach of, of care. And I think that's been extended technologically into things like, well, if we're building a new EKG machine, let's bring in the cardiologist, but let's bring in the electrical engineer and let's, let's bring in other people whose whose strengths share an intellectual or even an emotional border. I don't think there's any argument about that, right? That's, that's the nature of, of the collaborative experience of the collaboratory of all these, all these little uh, um, organizations that have, you know, accelerators and stuff like that. My point is that the advances in technology, the advances in analytics, the advances in thinking are occurring outside of the human realm. And my point is simple, that we need to incorporate technology into our collaborative dynamic. In other words, technology deserves a seat at the table. And that's going to change. But I, I think that that's, that's fundamental. And that, that's my, my, my central point, is that collaboration is advancing because technology is becoming so much more powerful. Now, flip that on its head. You know, I mean, if you're a clinician, how could you possibly track new data, breaking studies, clinical trials, new drugs, and, and all the esoteric aspects of my patient's care, you know, from, from a 23ME genomic analysis to um, the number of steps, to all sorts of things I'm, I'm bringing to the table now. So the ability for that clinician, or for that matter, anybody, a student, a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, to assimilate the information that's coming at them now is almost impossible. The new partner in care, the new partner in life, the new partner in cognition is technology. And that's going to be mediated by aspects of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So, you know, that's the collaborative dynamic. You know, and, and we do it already. I mean, I can't live without my smartphone. Mm-hmm. You know, I've said this a million times and I always get a laugh when people say it. If I go to work in the morning and I forget my lunch, I buy it on the fly. But if I leave my house and I forget my phone, I go back and get it because my phone is my partner. And I think that, that the phone is just a conduit to, to more complicated and advanced computers. So that, that's kind of where I'm going at with this, with the notion of collaboration. And I'm, I'm going to go back to that in just a little bit, but I did want to address the issue of consensus that you also mentioned in one of your, one of your talks. Cause I think, I think it's very interesting to, you know, to actually say that maybe consensus is not always a good Ah, consensus is a bunch of crap. I'm trying to I'm trying to come up with the appropriate marketing language here. Okay, um, we we live in this in this touchy feely world of collaboration. Let's go back to that. And unless I've got on my board, on my um, panel for a meeting, the appropriate constellation of genders, sexes, and other things, I will be criticized. But what I'm doing is I'm force-fitting something and driving this notion of, of a collaborative experience when, when I don't think it's optimized. And, and what I mean by that is if, if you want a white house and I want a red house, let's um, meet in the middle and, and, and make a pink house, build a pink house. 
And I think we're seeing a lot of that, particularly in large corporate settings where everyone needs to have a share of voice, where everyone needs to have, have a sense of engagement and involvement so that what happens is the, the ideas are neutered, that the ideas are, are sort of diluted to this intellectual average. And that's really scary because the, the objective of that collaborative dynamic of that consensus is not to meet in the middle. It's to find a new point at the edge of that circle and then to move everybody to a new circle. We tend to be just forcing everybody into the middle, into that bland point of mediocrity where everybody's point is recognized and included. But the brilliant dynamic answer is left languishing somewhere off in the distance. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, Tasha. You know, that could be a good thing. That could be a path forward. Yeah, I think big ideas might be too bold sometimes for the time they're presented in, you know, so just being before their time, which is why they get squashed or ignored. However, I do think perhaps some of the things you said might have been uh, interpreted in an unfavorable way going with consensus to encourage equality. And, and, you know, that's a very, very sort of inflammatory word in of itself. Should everyone, should everyone's ideas be weighted the same or, or should they not be weighted the same? Should I have a bias or prejudice? My point here is that the path forward might be two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. But what happens there is progress, cultural progress, sociological progress, innovation, progress, technological progress. But it has a it has a cost. And that cost is something that we might be willing to pay, but we just can't arbitrarily have that that decision that that, that's the right path forward. In certain instances, it may be, it may not be. I want to go back to the previous uh, thoughts that you had regarding collaboration and the impact that technology can have, for example, by helping doctors get better insights into their uh, patients, in their health in a specific point in time. And in Including artificial intelligence in this equation is very important. It's very inspiring. However, I guess, you know, as a, as a thinker and futurist, when do you think we're going to get there? Because at the moment, we still see that healthcare, despite progressing because of the pandemic and because of telemedicine and because of sudden awareness of the importance of technology is still moving slowly when it comes to technology adoption. And that's because it requires behavioral change and solving all the human factor related issues I mentioned before, the fact that you need to be mindful how things are introduced and the fact that, you know, just as we say, fax machines are still used in healthcare. It's cost related. It's just, there's a lot of factors impacting the futuristic Star Trek, Star, yeah, Star Trek reality that we want to be into and the reality that we are in. Um, okay. 
you said something, you said one phrase oh, and no. you said it as one thing. Let me tell you what that is. Technological adoption. Hmm. That's those are two separate things. And there is technology and the advancements of technology and machine learning and, and algorithms and artificial intelligence and, and predictive analytics. Then there's adoption. Then there's, you know, the system. And we don't talk enough about the hegemony, about the recalcitrant nature of the system, particularly in the, in the United States, where it's, it's driven by, I think, finance. It's by, by can we get it built? And that is, you know, a very, very complex discussion. But I think that our ability to change is one of the biggest points of obstruction that, that we see in advances in healthcare. Well, that I mean, I think healthcare is doing better. I think we're seeing dramatic changes in the nature of of drugs, of disease detection, of immuno oncology, of CRISPR, of imaging with advances in in X ray technology and, and digitization of the X ray. You know, I've talked about that quite a bit. Um, a company in Israel that's looking at digitizing the X ray source that may may profoundly impact imaging. That's kind of like what happened with the digital camera and how that changed the game with photography. So I don't think medicine is changing slowly. I think humanity is changing slowly in the context of rapid technological advance. And that's the point of conflict. And we don't really address that that much. We just sort of lump it together as technological adoption. And we think of that as one thing when I think it's probably a much more complicated constellation of issues. I've been a chronic patient for 18 years. So I've been, you know, following the development of medicine and healthcare for at least that period. So I, when looking back, it's quite exciting to see how things are changing for the better, you know, how many more drugs are available today for chronic conditions than, than they used to be. How, um, Simple things like electronic prescriptions are making the whole experience better for the patient. So one thought that um, I also considered when thinking about the speeches that you had so far is, you know, this notion that um, technology could change medical profession for the better from uh, debureaucratizing it to give uh, doctors uh, more time with their patients. I don't believe that's going to happen because we are seeing shortages of medical professions, professionals. I do see, however, a future where doctors won't spend much more time with the patients, but they will be more efficient, which means that patients will have to wait less for the appropriate and timely care. So that's kind of where my optimism lies. Where's yours? You know, waiting less is an interesting, interesting observation. I think that why can't we provide care in real time? In other words, it's, it's less about the wait in the office, but some kind of a real time continuum where, where patients are engaged through and with technology that they have a telemedicine visit scheduled by their computer because of a change in their HbA1c or some other dynamic. So I think it's, it's a much more richer dynamic because what we're doing is we're looking at the future through the lens of the past. 
So we're looking at the future and we're saying, well, will the waiting room be, will we wait longer or shorter? Well, maybe there won't be a waiting room. Maybe the waiting room will become a learning room. So I I don't know. I think that technology will change. I think that the shortage of clinicians will evolve because multiple stakeholders will be more empowered. Respiratory therapists can do uh, spirometry, can maybe prescribe medicines in certain instances in association with, let's say, a professional to professional telemedicine construct. So it's not that physicians will become more rare. I think we will see a much broader distribution of clinical abilities and acumen that is mediated by technology. So I think that, and this is the big thing for me, the cognitive heavy lifting of medicine will be shifted to technology. And and that really makes people completely crazy because we know that the doctor is the smartest person in the room. Right. That's sort of this sacrosanct observation that there's a nurse and there's a technician and there's all these other people. But when the doctor walks into the into the room, people stand taller and pay attention to that expert. That's the top of the pecking order. And that's a that's a psychodynamic that's really interesting because the smartest smartest person in the room now is the computer. And and that that can change things in in profound ways so that, you know, when I go to the optometrist, or let's say even to the ophthalmologist, I put my chin on that little device and it scans the back of my eye and my lens and it checks for things. It also spits out what my prescription is. That complete experience has been digitized and my prescription is spit out and I can get my glasses filled. And that, that might be tantamount to what's going on in the future. Um, so that might give physicians more time to, to have what they've been asking for, to spend more time with the patient. But here's the thing that I think is going to kind of kind of throw a, a wrench in that. I don't think doctors want more time with their patients. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know about that uh, perspective of yours. But I, as I mentioned before, I think that even if there is a desire, it's not a realistic expectation out, especially in public systems. It is possible in, um, you know, in private settings, in private offerings. You've got companies that offer you consultations that are half an hour, one hour long, if that's needed. But I think that, you know, technology is going to enable uh, effectiveness and yes, real time interaction between doctors and patients once they already are diagnosed and you just need to manage the disease. However, the problem at the moment is the initial diagnosis. You know, that first visit that gets you to a specialist that then orders the tests and then, uh, kind of and that, and that diagnostic is going to stay the same over the next 20 years. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that's the part that I see can fundamentally change if the system becomes more effective. But, you know, just to, to maybe, um, derive away from that. Uh, when are you getting vaccinated? Am I? Are you not? Yeah, I'll get vaccinated. I, I, you know, I'm in a generally low risk category. Um, so I think that we have to prioritize vaccinations right now. So I'm just, I'm sitting back. And uh, being a good so, good citizen and practicing what I feel are appropriate uh, guidelines. So I don't know when I'll be vaccinated. Uh, I'm hopeful that the rollout 
will become more efficient. You know, a lot of people have been kind of, you know, poking fun at the United States and, and comparing them to Israel as, as we, we started off our discussion. But my, my vision is to get Amazon and Salesforce involved in the distribution of the vaccine. I do want to, you know, end this discussion with an optimistic, positive outlook for this year as the first episode. So, you know, hit us with some, some, some positivity in the realms of digital health. Well, I think that we have seen technology, in, in particular pharmaceutical science, do things that have never been done. And they've leveraged a variety of resources and created a vaccine that is extraordinarily effective. So think about this as an X and Y axis. Not only did they do it quickly, but they did it very, very well. You know, look at the, the early efficacy levels of some of these vaccines from Pfizer um, and, and other companies, you know, 90, 95%. So for me, this is a testament to pharmaceutical science, number one. Number two, I'm very optimistic about the way people came together and brought innovation to bear in whatever social construct there was. If we needed respirators, we got respirators. We had car manufacturers build respirators. If we needed new new tracing mechanisms, those came to market. So I think the human spirit empowered by technology came to life um, over the last year and that we're going to get beyond this. And it's my hope that 10 years from now, we will mispronounce COVID and we'll call it something like the, 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 the co, co, Kojak or the Codid or something virus, because we'll be so enamored with the success of humanity, science and technology that this will be just a small afterthought in our lives. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the discussion, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast or by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for the device you're using. Stay tuned.